Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Tony joining us now from PIMCO, the author of the strategic bond investor. Tony, let's start here. The shape of this cycle, how fast it's going to move and how easy it is to keep up, or rather how difficult it is. Can you run me through that now, Tony? I'll think of last, well, first of all, thanks for having me here today. Um, think of the unemployment rate released Friday in the United States, 4.2%. What is full employment? It's, there's a question mark about that. The Federal Reserve in its summary of economic projections in September said, the longer run uh, full employment rate is 4%. So it seems we're on the cusp of reaching full employment. Perhaps we are there because of a large uh, outflow of people uh, retiring. Uh, and this brings about a so-called late cycle dynamic, which is what we're all talking about, which is an acceleration in inflation, uh, a reduction in monetary accommodation <clears throat> through a reduction in bond purchases, and of course, potential for uh, rate increases. This is what you get in a the late cycle part of the, the cycle, the late portion of the cycle, and something investors have to right. think about in 2022. The final comment is that the jobless rate next year, most project will be somewhere in the threes, probably three and a half percent, matching the low uh, pre-pandemic. Right. And right. so that's a different type of investment scenario. Tony, you're one of the most qualified people in the world for this question. Do that's you it. perceive smooth functions, smooth movements of yield, movements of price, or should we genuinely fear jump conditions? We probably should not fear jump conditions, in part because the Federal Reserve over four years has built up an enormous amount of respect for its ability to rein in inflation. Uh, that hard-won credibility is something it, it, it is not likely to give up. And it can use its words. Uh, ben Bernanke famously said that monetary policy is 2% action, 98% communication. With a few words, and think of Mario Draghi in 2012 with his so-called butterfly speech when he said, whatever it takes. That, that set Europe off to the races, so to speak. It turned it around. So with a few words, because of built-up credibility, the idea of jump risk with worries about inflation uh, is low. And we see, finally, a final comment is that inflation expectations broadly uh, look pretty tame. And final, final comment is, isn't this what the Federal Reserve sought um, after the global financial crisis to get rid of uh, that disinflation, deflationary mindset? Right. It's a huge success. Uh, has it gone too far? Uh, probably not, because, again, it has 40 years of success to build on. Tony, there's the jump condition indicated by rhetoric from the Federal Reserve. There's also the jump condition from liquidity, especially as the Fed stops soaking up as much of the off-the-run treasuries. Not to get all geeky, but a lot of people have pointed to a lack of liquidity and some of the distortions yes. that we're seeing. Yes. How much can we get a clear read on the yield curve, on some of the dynamics in a bond market beset by all of these liquidity issues? Great question, Lisa, and it's an important question to be thinking about this decade because it's a lot different than other decades. The so-called principal agent model is broken, which is to say that it's difficult in the bond market to find an intermediary to transfer risk, whether that be to, to, to gain it or to, to lose it. Here's one quick example. Uh, the, the primary dealers, those that are the go-betweens, the intermediaries, large investment firms, they held $300 billion of corporate bonds in 2007. Today, they hold less than $10 billion, despite the, that corporate bond market doubling in size. In other words, 
uh, intermediaries aren't willing or able to hold inventory. It's like a game of hot potato every day. And during periods of stress, it's even worse. And so this is an issue that, uh, that uh, the Federal Reserve and others that, that, that construct the architecture of the bond market uh, probably want to think about, should think about, because it's it makes things difficult, uh, again, especially in times of stress. Tony, love catching up with you, sir. Tony, Thanks thank for being you. with us this morning. Tony Crescenti there thank of thank PIMCO. You we yeah. begin equity coverage today with Ed Yardani joining in a bit. Lizanne Saunders now with Charles Schwab. She's had the courage to be in the market and informs all of us every morning with her team with absolutely brilliant charts, sometimes Bloomberg charts out on uh, Twitter as well. Lizanne, buy on the dip. I guess it's once more in order. The cliche of Tina. What's the most dangerous cliche right now? I don't know if it's a cliche, but I think the notion uh, that the market has been so resilient throughout the year in the face of all the risks that are very well known um, simply suggests that you're not even peeling the first layer of the onion back uh, I, on you know one of these off-posted charts on, on Twitter that I put is the drawdown table looking at the index level declines, which whether it's the S&P, NASDAQ or Russell have been somewhat limited, 5% in the case of the S&P, only 10% in the case of the other two, but the <clears throat> average maximum drawdown at some right. point this year across all stocks in the S&P is minus 19. It's minus 42 in the case of the NASDAQ. Now, that's a pretty benign way to go through a corrective phase via the process of rotation. I think we'd all prefer that over the bottom falling out all at once, but it does <clears throat> make for a more treacherous environment trying mm -hmm. to trade around those right. rotational corrections. Lizanne, John Farrell has in treatment a coffee table book called Drawdown Meditation, which is about the sleepiness of the market. Are we guilty right now, Lizanne Saunders, of drawdown me uh, meditation, or we've just become benumbed by this great bull market? Well, I, I think there had been, and notice the emphasis on had, a tremendous amount of complacency. We were seeing speculative froth kick back in, even in some of the lower quality areas that had dominated trading in the early part of this year. But the, the volatility that started on um, you know, Bleak Friday with the Omicron news really uh, brought a shift in behavioral measures of sentiment. And I think that has been a factor in why the market is finding a lift, because that complacency, that speculative froth, got wrung out pretty quickly, um, both in attitudinal measures, survey-based data like AAII, but also positioning with a put-call ratio or other metrics that actually look at what certain cohorts of shorter-term traders are doing. So that's not a bad setup uh, more recently is that quick reversal in sentiment conditions. Lizanne, uh, this is not a time for complacency, as you said. However, a very difficult time to hedge given the inflationary expectations, given the Fed. What's your top hedge for potential volatility at this point? I don't know that I would call it a, a hedge. I know that term often gets used somewhat generically, even when applied to disciplines like diversification. I mean, I think true hedging, a lot of that might be able to be done in the, the VIX futures market or the options market, but there's no blanket recommendation because it depends on what it is you're trying to hedge. In terms of just trying to protect some downside, in addition to the disciplines of diversification, I think one of the strategies to consider employing, taking into consideration the, the increased turnover and 
things like tax implications is maybe more periodic rebalancing, especially for investors that might have taken just a calendar-based rebalancing approach. They might do it at year end. They might do it at quarter end. Instead, take advantage of these swift rotations and maybe up the pace of rebalancing so you're more frequently trimming into strength, taking profits where profits are given to you. In some cases, very significant profits in very condensed period of times and dealing with that flip-flop, you're also adding into positions maybe that have had short-term underperformance. So that's probably the best strategy to approach a much more volatile period like now. What's interesting to me, Lizanne, is that you don't talk about compositional shifts on sort of a broader scale, uh, whether it's increasing to bonds or increasing the duration or necessarily anything that's a typical hedge. And I wonder if that's new for you or if this has always been your recommendation, basically the idea that if inflation really is the main threat, that's going to be a problem for a 60-40 portfolio. That's going to be a problem for traditional uh, balancings. Well, the key there in terms of things like the 60-40 portfolio is watching the correlation between bond yields and stock prices. We went for about 30 years from the mid-60s until the late 90s, where that correlation was pretty persistently negative. And that's really when a 60-40 type strategy struggled a bit more. It was also an environment that had many more supply shocks. Then fast forward to the 20 years up until this year, it has been almost exclusively a positive correlation environment in an environment where inflation was quite low and we were more subjected to demand shocks than we were supply shocks. When we first saw the eruption in inflation in the middle part of this year, that correlation dipped back into negative territory, it popped back out. Right. But to me, that is the key to watch heading into 2022, is if we move back into negative correlation on a sustained basis, I think that suggests we're shifting into a more secular inflationary backdrop. That doesn't mean perpetually rising inflation, doesn't necessarily mean stagflation. But to your point, Lisa, a very different environment in terms of how to add that diversification and what to do on the fixed income side of portfolios, which, of course, is your friend and my friend and colleague. <laughs> Kathy Jones is uh, sure. bailiwick. <laughs> I, I wonder, though, at what point people take a look at the behavior of the bond market over the past couple of weeks. They say, look at the 10-year, way back down 1.43%. And that sell-off, that negative correlation just isn't going to happen because any kind of turmoil is going to lead people back into the long end of the Treasury curve. Can we make that assumption or is it too premature? I think it's premature. We also know that throughout the course of the past year, both when we saw that 10-year spike up to close to 175 in March, and then the equally swift retreat back down into the 115, and a lot of that was was positioning and short covering. And I, I think you have to sort of take with a grain of salt to some degree the messaging back to the equity market in areas like that. That doesn't mean disregard what's happening in the 10-year. I think really key will be elsewhere in the credit markets, what we see happen out the risk spectrum in terms of spreads. I think that's going to be a more important tell if and when we ever get to a point where where spreads are signaling a more dire message. I think that is the message for sure that equity investors want to heed. But I think you have to take that short-term positioning into consideration when looking at moves really across the the Treasury curve um, all the way out to the long end. Just an awesome team over at Schwab. Kathy Jones over on fixed income. Lizanne Saunders on equities. Lizanne, thank you for being with us today. Lizanne Saunders there of Charles Schwab. I've got eight ways to go here, John. We had did this earlier with Lizanne Saunders of Charles Schwab, and we're now thrilled to extend the conversation to give you global Wall Street perspective 
with Edward Yardeni. He is founder and chief investment strategist at Yardeni Research. Long ago, high above Cayuga's waters, he knew double-digit inflation and then on to parchment at Yale University. Ed, I thought, there we go. Thank you. Good morning, Cornell on radio. Uh, Ed, I want to go to the Krugman essay last week where he destroyed monetarism and said simply, it was a theory then, it's not now. What mm -hmm. should we do with our collective memory of the ghosts of the 70s, the theories of Milton Friedman? Well, I, I think he, he was right up until the pandemic. Uh, we did see a tremendous amount of quantitative easing, uh, zero interest rates, uh, central banks uh, provided a tremendous amount of liquidity. And yet there were some very powerful forces that kept inflation down. Uh, disinflation was the law of the land for many, many years uh, following the great inflation of the 1970s. Um, it was things like globalization and technological innovation, aging demography, and too much debt that all were fundamentally disinflationary. But the pandemic changed all that because it really put monetarism on steroids and speed in the form of modern monetary theory. We just had this unprecedented increase in government debt deficits, and all of that was to a large right. extent financed by the central banks. And help us with the distance here from Dartmouth College and David Blanche Flower, Hanover, New Hampshire, in the University of Cambridge and Dr. L. Arian. They are polar opposites on the inflation guess. Where do you stand on that? Well, I, I think inflation is persistent. Obviously, the word transitory is no longer allowed in our conversation, according to Jay Powell. So persistent. Uh, I, I think it's going to be four to five percent for the consumption deflator until the middle of uh, next year. And then I think it does ease back down to, to three to four uh, percent. I don't think it's going to go back to two percent anytime soon. And I will not be surprised if the Fed uh, deals with that. Uh, by uh, raising the Fed funds rate by maybe two, maybe three times. But I think they might also seriously consider raising the inflation target, moving the goal uh, from 2% to 3%. Ed, so a lot of people are looking at a Federal Reserve that is still responsive to market turmoil, that basically, right. if they do signal that they're going to raise rates next year and there is some sort of tantrum, they'll step in and ease uh, some of the conditions. Mm -hmm. How much is that anachronism at this point, given that there's a very yeah. different paradigm? I, I think it is. You're absolutely right. It's a different paradigm. And uh, we've had uh, four uh, taper tantrums since 2013. We had one in May 2013, and then we had another one in early 2016, one in uh, right before Christmas on 2018. And then this one, this one is a work in progress. It's uh, it's not clear just how it's going to play out. Uh, but I think that the big difference is this time around, the Fed can't give the market what it wants, uh, which would be, OK, back off, back off. Don't 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 taper so much, uh, simply because the inflation problem is real. And the Fed has made it very clear that uh, they, they are now concerned about it. So it's going to be pretty hard for them to back off. Although I do notice in the data, there's been a real shift over the past few weeks that people are bringing down their longer term expectations once again for inflation. It seems as if mm -hmm. people are convinced that a Federal Reserve hiking rates in the near term will allow growth to revert to something similar to what we've seen in the past, albeit possibly even lower based right. on the demographics right. you're talking about. Is that a reality in your perspective? Does this give them leeway to hike a couple times, let it go and actually have a smooth exit? I hope so. I think that's the consensus view. Maybe it's wishful thinking. Maybe 
you know, the, the, the pessimism about the near term is being offset by the perception that uh, uh, the, the pain now will lead to gain later. Uh, look, first and foremost, I don't think this is going to wind up to be like the 1970s. There's some aspects of that going on right now, like a wage price spiral, which is of concern. And we're already seeing some cost of living adjustments being put into contracts. Uh, but I'm a big believer that productivity is making a huge comeback. And the reason for that is one of the huge differences between now and the 70s is there's no growth in the labor force. And that's uh, related to demography. And uh, companies are just going to have to increase productivity to offset the fact that the labor shortages are not temporary, they're chronic. Hey, Jordani, I want to go to your book, and I want to say it is a triumph to Megan Desai of the London School of Economics, where Ed Giardini, folks, writes in praise of profits, and you begin with the great David Ricardo, who changed how we think. And this underestimation of profits, is the profits now for technology different than the profits of December of 2000? Absolutely. I mean, uh, in, in, in 1999 and 2000, a lot of the profits in technology uh, were based on dot-com companies who had really no serious business plan uh, ordering technology and paying for it with credit. Uh, the, the, the big uh, situation back then was that you had uh, telecom companies uh, seller financing their, their customers. So th those profits were kind of phony. And uh, it, it was a period where there was a lot of uh, manipulation of profits. This time around, these are very real profits. They're based on very real businesses. And, and I think technology is, uh, is the wave of the future. It's, uh, it, it always is, but it's more right. so than ever. How do you respond to the cry of 15 years that the profits are all going to a few? Well, there, there is this kind of Marxist view uh, out there that... Uh, if if a company is profitable, it might must be exploiting somebody, and it's probably exploiting workers, and it may be exploiting consumers by not giving them the very best. Uh, but I make a distinction between two kinds of capitalism in my book, and that's entrepreneurial capitalism and crony capitalism. Uh, I actually am I'm in the same camp as uh, progressive socialists when I when I say that uh, I'm against crony capitalism. Uh, crony capitalism isn't capitalism. It's all about using the political system to game the system. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur myself, and I, I can't afford lobbyists, so uh, I think that's really the definite distinction between an entrepreneur and a crony is uh, whether you can afford lobbyists or not. I can't, and I've got to compete. I've got to give customers the very best. So in my book, I also argue that Adam Smith did a terrible job of marketing capitalism by telling us that it's all about selfishness. It's not selfishness. It's insecurity. I'm going to go out of business if I don't give my customers the very best of what I have. I'm sure that that's a harder sell, that capitalism, go for it because it's based on insecurity. I do wonder, though, Ed, just going into the realm of trading, going into the realm of how you sure. position in such a tenuous period, given that you do feel overly, uh, overall optimistic about productivity, but a little sure. bit concerned about the Fed and how that all shakes out. Have we already priced in the dynamism in technology, the productivity gains that you're expecting, or do you think that that will fuel further gains in the headline indexes next year? Well, look, I, I think the best is yet to come for us in terms of uh, prosperity, in terms of standard of living. Uh, I think technology is going to solve a lot of our problems. It is solving a lot of our problems. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's we're not going to get uh, double-digit increases in the stock market anytime soon. Earnings peaked on a year-over-year -year basis in the second quarter, and that doesn't mean they go down. They just grow at a slower pace. So I'm predicting that we go from 4,800 by year end. So 
I'm, 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 we're getting close, but uh, no cigar just yet. And then uh, something like 5,200 uh, by the end of next year and 5,500 by the end of 2013. Those, those are not spectacular increases. They're single digits consistent with single digit er, uh, increases in earnings. Ed, looking forward to giving the book a read. It's on my desk. Thanks Thank for being you. with us this Thanks morning, so buddy. Appreciate it. Ed Yardeni of Yardeni Research and author of The Praise of Profit. He's out of Notre Dame in Michigan, and, you know, it's a typical structure that you would see for an airline executive in the modern era. Can we talk about customer service, Tom, in the sky right now? I, that relationship has just I, broken down yeah, between it, the people that work for the airlines and the people that fly right now. It, it is broken. Know, our personal soap opera here that Lisa and I are living as well as we're catching up with John Farrell. John, you've been living this for 18 months, I'll say, and I've got a renewed respect for what you and many others flying out of Heathrow have had to put up with. Tom, there's a tension right now between <clears throat> the people who work for the airlines and the people who fly on the airlines. Obviously, away from the extreme stories, which are absolutely ridiculous, where there's been violence on the planes and, and and there's absolutely zero support from anyone for any of that. But anyone flying right now, Tom, has felt that tension between the people who work on the airlines. And well, with me personally, I've found it too. Over the mask, Tom, very, very aggressive over I, the masking. And they've been put in a very unfortunate position where clearly they feel at risk on the airline themselves. And they feel like they also have to enforce these policies too. And it just creates this natural tension, Tom, that right. is there. It's kind of the elephant in the room when you fly right now. It's just how delicate yeah. things seem to be between the passenger well, and the airline staff. It's a pandemic. But I'm going to say, John, this is a real leadership exercise. And everybody's got their own anecdotes. Uh, I'll give a plus plus to Delta. That happens to be my experience. But we were talking about JetBlue earlier. Uh, you know, John, you and I got in at 5.50 and Lisa was already talking up JetBlue because she was in at 3 a.m. Well, I'll tell you the biggest misconception about JetBlue on either <clears> side of the Atlantic. And as they start that new entry into that corridor, Tom, over the last few months, the misconception that they are like the Ryanair of... Yeah. American Airlines. And I don't think that's right. And I think that misconception also exists to some degree in the yeah. United States, Tom. I don't see no. them as a budget <clears throat> airline per se. I think their mint offering, I, the mint cabin, has been absolutely fantastic. To add value off of Bloomberg surveillance, Helene Becker with us a few days ago from Cowan with a, a, a real great interest in United Airlines. We are united in the value. And Amish Adaljo has given us, he's senior scholar at Johns Hopkins and truly in the trenches on this pandemic. Amish, I began the show by suggesting that the lift in the market two days in a row, there's this, 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 and it's one single news article that says Omicron tilts towards being a cold. What say you about the present research on Omicron? It would be great if it tilts towards being a cold, but I don't think we can say that with certainty yet. I think there's a possibility that that may be the case based on some of the early case series that are coming from South Africa that we're not seeing as many people being hospitalized, as not many people, not as many people needing ICU beds or needing oxygen, and a lot of people getting picked up incidentally when they're in the hospital for other reasons. That's all reassuring. But we need more data to be able to say that with certainty. And we also need to see what happens when we extrapolate South Africa's experience to countries that are older, like the U.S. And, and it's also the case that the U.S. has more vaccination. So this would be a great thing. I think all of us are cautiously optimistic. 
it, it would be it's interesting because it all seems to be converging upon this consensus and and that's a good thing because we're not seeing outliers of severe disease yet i suspect we will see it but hopefully this is this is kind of the step that the virus takes to become something that we deal with more frequently on an annual basis that has the ability to get around our immunity but not make us too sick but i think we still have to wait right. for more time. What is your waiting to the calendar, to the fact that there are waves to the autumn and into winter, whether it's a cold, the flu that we would amateurs would call it? What's the waiting of the seasonality versus all our other fears? Well, I do think that coronaviruses are going to ultimately end up becoming seasonal because all of the other ones do. This one just takes some time to get to seasonality because there's not enough immunity in the population. But I do think we will see intensification of spread when it gets colder, when people move indoors, and when spread of the virus is more efficient. It's just going to take some time to see complete that, that complete stark seasonality. Right now we do see some seasonality, but there's still transmission going on in the summer because there's too, much, too, too many people that were not immune. Given what we know about Omicron and what it can do getting around certain immunizations, whether it's vaccinated uh, individuals or people who have been previously in, uh, infected, what does it mean to be fully vaccinated? Does it mean a booster shot as well? Well, I think you have to remember that vaccines are not all or all or nothing. It's not an on and off switch. There's a spectrum of protection that they provide. And even if Omicron is able to get around some of the immunity, which is what likely the case, it's not able to get around what matters, protection against serious disease, hospitalization and death. And when you think about boosters, to me, the threshold has always been preventing serious illness, hospitalization and death. And that's why I'm somebody who thinks boosters belong to people that are above the age of 65, high risk conditions, those who got the J&J &J vaccine. For the healthy population, uh, it's a little bit bit unclear whether they're needed or not, even though the CDC updated their recommendations. And there is some controversy in the field. There may be a need with Omicron to make an Omicron specific booster, and then that's a little bit different. But these first generation boosters, I think in a healthy population, you're just really pushing off a breakthrough infection sometime in the future. You're not really giving a great uh, amount of protection in terms of what it actually gives you. But if you're older or have a high risk condition, yeah. yes, it's definitely clear, clear thing, clear benefits there. Dr. Dalton, before we let you go, I'd love you to weigh in on the mandate in New York City now that all private sector employees get vaccinated. Is this the course of travel that you expect not only in New York City, but around the country and around the world? I think it's going to be certain cities that try and do this. It's it's interesting because New York City already has one of the highest vaccination rates in the country. It would be great if that was going on in, in parts of the, the South where the vaccination rates are low. But what we'll find probably is some states that are already highly vaccinated are going to become more boosted and more highly vaccinated while the rest of the country kind of languishes at that lower rate of vaccination, like West Virginia, 41% fully vaccinated. So I think we're, we're kind of still in that two-track pandemic. But I, I think that because the OSHA mandate predictably got tied up in courts, you're going to see local municipalities and states try the same thing. Dr. Thank you, sir. Always enjoy catching up with you. In fact, love it. Dr. Amos Adalja of Johns Hopkins. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.